there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Between the two world wars, and even after, up until the mid-1950s, giant bluefin tuna, or tunny as they were called back then, were regularly caught by well-heeled British anglers and foreign visitors, fishing from small rowing boats off the Yorkshire coast from towns like Scarborough and Whitby. A mothership would take them off in amongst the herring drifters where tuna would be attracted by fish falling from the handhold drift nets. The rowing boat would then approach with herring live baits, and many fish between 500 and 851 pounds were caught. It wasn't actually a decline in tuna numbers that brought an end to the North Sea tuna fishing. It was a ban on herring fishing due to the near collapse of the herring population, which left anglers unable to locate the larger predators without the drift netters chumming them up though the numbers would presumably also mirror the availability of the mainstay of food. So tuna continued to visit the area, supposedly running up the west coast of Ireland and rounding the north tip of Scotland into the North Sea, which is something they'd probably been doing for many, many thousands of years. The Scandinavians once even had a commercial fishery for them there, though anglers fishing Irish waters were blissfully unaware of them throughout that period. Then at the start of the 21st century, that situation very suddenly changed. Irish charter boats from Westport North to Malin Head then began fitting outriggers to the boats and started targeting the giant bluefins using techniques more usually seen in warmer foreign waters. Linking up with me here is Michael McVeigh, skipper of the Downings-based angling charter boat Ross Gule, and one of the many has to be said responsible for this unique but unfortunately short-lived slice of Irish angling history. So around the year 2000, something obviously changed. What was it then that triggered such a rapid turnaround and entry into a branch of fishing which at best is seasonal and always going to be extremely challenging? Very simply, it was the knowledge that there were good numbers of bluefin tuna in an area off the northwest coast of Ireland. Knowing that they're there and actually investing, both in terms of the equipment and the time into actually doing something about it, is quite a big step. So despite the potentially steep learning curve, you must have felt that you was in with more than a fighting chance. They are absolutely unique in world terms, and I know that at one stage here, there were scientists from uh, Stanford University in America, and the thrust of their research was... They couldn't understand why bluefin tuna were so efficient, why their muscles were so efficient. Because their heart takes blood direct from their gills, all fishes' hearts are at basically at seawater temperature. And bluefin tuna are unique in that their muscles, scientifically, physiologically, their muscles shouldn't be able to work as well as they can. And the, the scientists were here, and, and obviously the reason the scientists were are researching into bluefin tuna and this physiological gift that they have is because they want to try to discover what it is, so that if you or I have a heart attack at some stage in the future, they can pump some of it into our hearts. So they're unique for that. Their body temperature is about 10 to 15 Fahrenheit degrees higher than water temperature. So... In order for them to maintain that body temperature, because after all they don't have fur like mammals, they need to eat a hell of a lot of food per day. And it's said that they eat up to a quarter of their body weight per day in, in food. 
So blue finch unit need lots and lots and lots and lots of food to keep their body temperature up. And then, of course, the ecological niche that they fit into is because their body temperature is so high and their muscles work so efficiently. They've got the energy to go and eat all these fish, which they have to catch lots of. As a result, they feed on small, oily fish. The oil, obviously, for the energy and small fish. So what they do is they eat hundreds and hundreds of small, oily fish rather than like a shark that would go for one shark would eat a seal, bluefin tuna eat loads and loads and loads of small oily fish. Anything really from sardines, scod, mackerel, herring, any of those small oily fish, there's a big huge bait ball of them, they feed in those and that's the way they work. Which presumably must have always been about in the right quantities along Ireland's Atlantic coast. From my point of view, bluefin tuna have been here for 100,000 years or 500,000 years or whatever it is. The strange thing is that no one really discovered them until the trawlers. What, what actually happened was, I remember a number of years ago, there were the super trawlers working here, and they work out of, they're mostly out of work out of Kelly Beggs. Kelly Beggs lands something like 90% of the weight of commercial fish in Ireland. And the, these huge super trawlers, and I mean, I've seen American guys over here looking at the super trawlers in Kelly Beggs and going, wow, we have bigger trawlers than they have in America. So I remember about, I'm sure it was 20 years ago or maybe 25 years ago, one of these super trawlers landed. They were fishing for herring sometime, I think it was in August now, I'm not 100% sure, but they were fishing for herring somewhere off the west coast of Ireland and they landed about 8, 10, 12, something like that, large bluefin tuna. And that caused a bit of furore at the time. The British angling magazine Sea Angler had a story in it about these bluefin photographs of these bluefin tuna hanging up. And it sort of died then. There was nothing really more said about it after that. But what actually happened was the earliest I've ever seen a bluefin tuna here was the 18th of August. I've spoke to some people who said they've seen them at the end of July. I don't know. The earliest I've seen one's the 18th of August. But certainly from my point of view, their season runs from somewhere around the end of August through to... November, and I mean, I know they've been seen in November, I mean, even up to the middle of November, I think. But that's their season. But what actually happens with those super trawlers, which are really the only way that commercial fishermen are going to catch tuna, is with these super trawlers with pelagic trawls. In other words, they're fishing midwater for herring or mackerel or whatever. They're going to catch bluefin tuna as a bycatch, and they're per trawl with these huge big nets. So the only way they were ever going to show up in Irish waters Without anyone seeing them, the only way they're going to show up in a commercial catch is these pelagic trawlers. The trawlers, they picked up these when they were fishing for herring. It was probably in August sometime. The super trawlers in Kelly Beggs, for years and years now, they're quite a number of years, probably 30, 40 years, they've been catching mackerel, and that's been their bread and butter. The mackerel season starts in October and finishes in April. That's the way it used to be. So they went out in October time, but they used to start, I think, away up off the northwest coast of Scotland. And as the season progressed down towards April, they worked their way down the west coast of Ireland, out, you know, far off the west coast of Ireland, not close in, and down towards the Bay of Biscay. So they weren't really in the same place at the same time as the bluefin tuna. Now, what happened about 15 years ago, so that's, we're talking about 1995, 1996, something like that. There was a market which opened up in Japan for scod. Some people call them horse mackerel. They're a member of the Trevelli family. 
the commercial fishermen here call them Craig herrings. Craig meaning rock herrings. But at any rate, there was a market opened up in Japan for scod uh, around about 1995, 1998, sometime around then. And the super trawlers from Killybegs then started fishing for scod. And they, were, they started fishing for scod in really in two main places, one off the west coast of Donegal and the other one off the north coast of Donegal. And the scod arrive here round about the middle of August and they're here up until probably November. So the scod season is exactly the same as bluefin tuna season. And as soon as those per trawlers, those super trawlers started working here off Donegal, fishing for scod, they started picking up bluefin tuna immediately and picking them up regularly and picking up maybe not lots, but certainly there was at least one or two tuna being landed every single night of the week from they started. And that was it. The news got out. They were landing these bluefin tuna. It was a bycatch and... Ironically, the commercial men didn't want them because as far as they were concerned, they were just jamming their pumps up. The way they worked with the power trawlers, they would tow a net between two trawlers, huge big pelagic net between two trawlers, and all sorts of technology built into the net. And when they got whatever it was, two, three, five hundred tonne of scud in the net, then the trawlers came together, formed the net into a circle, and they put a huge big tube, about uh, 18 inches or 20 inches in diameter, which is you know, half a metre in diameter, put that into the water and sucked the scot up out of the sea, same way as they do with uh, mackerel and herring. So they didn't want the bluefin tuna because they were just sna- they were snagging in their pumps. But anyway, they landed them and, and the word got out, and that was it. So the bluefin suddenly appear on the agenda, and quite naturally, for such a highly prized angling species, lots of people want to go out and try to catch them on rotten line. But we're not talking here of angling methods that we in this northern outpost of Europe are familiar with. It seems to me that you have a joint problem here of tactical approach, plus selling many potential blank hours at sea with only the possibility of a result, albeit very likely the best result that angler will have ever had. Well, (laughs) what happened, and it's the same as the race to the South Pole or the race to Everest, there's never one person, whatever it is within men, that makes them want to be the first. They want to push the envelope out. Whatever it is within us, we have to do that. And in actual fact, as soon as those trawlers started landing at Bluefin Tuna, it was going on in my head, I, I have to do something to catch one of these. There was another guy called Adrian Malloy who lives in South Donegal. He was thinking exactly the same thing. And there was another guy, an old English man called Alan Glanville or Alan MacGlanville. He lived in Ireland, but he was originally from Cornwall or somewhere like that. But he was way over 70, he was 70 odd years of age. But the three of us all went on our own way and working separately, not working together, but we all decided we were going to catch one of these fish. I was just about to start a change of career. So I had a boat which I was going to start chartering off the north coast of Donegal in Ireland out of Downings and I had that ordered and there was I think it was an 18 month waiting list to get the the boat. Anyway I had that boat ordered and I was speaking to a friend of mine who was the secretary of the Irish Specimen Fish Committee, a guy called Kevin Lennon and I spoke to him and I know that he had tried one time out in the Porcupine Bank to catch bluefin tuna you know they went out one time years ago but at any rate Kevin Lennon knew a man, a Welsh man, a Welsh journalist, an angling journalist called Clive Gammon, 
who had worked in America, he was worked for Sports Illustrated. It's the biggest sports magazine in America. He worked in Sports Illustrated in America. Kevin spoke to, to Clave Gammon in America. And all of, I mean, the Bluefin Tuna, there's a very established angling fishery for them, as well as a commercial fishery for them, off the east coast of America, right up to Canada. The Bluefin Tuna, they're breed in the Gulf of Mexico in the springtime, and they head up to Canada, up to Prince Edward Island in the autumn, and then come back down again. At any rate, Kevin Lennon spoke to Clive Gammon about it and about my boat. And what Clive Gammon did was he put an advertisement in the East Coast Tuna Fishermen's Association magazine, monthly or quarterly magazine. And I think there are probably, I think, about three to 500 commercial fishermen in America who fish for bluefin tuna. And these are small guys operating small boats, say 40-foot boats, something like that. And they fish for bluefin tuna commercially. They used to handline them, but they found out then that it was more efficient and more effective and that a higher catch rate if they actually used fishing rods and reels. But previously that they had used hand lines, and what they used to do was if, when they hooked up one with a hand line, the tuna was peeling off line. They connected a float on, a small float, probably about the size of a balloon or maybe a little smaller than that. They put a float on every... 30 metres or something like that and as the bluefin tuna swam away the more of these balloons was on the line the, the harder it was fighting the balloons but at any rate they swapped over to Rodden Line. So Clive Gammon put an advert in the East Coast Tuna Fishermen's Association magazine and it was answered by a guy who lived in Boston, a guy called Dan Shannon now Dan Shannon's mother and father were from the west coast of Ireland in a place called Doolin in County Clare Sorry, his father was from there, and his father moved. He got married and moved to America, and he was a policeman. He was a sergeant in the police in Boston, and his son, Don Shannon, then, he was a commercial fisherman there. But Don used to go on holidays to Doolin in County Clare when he was a young fella, and he used to ask, when he, he actually fished with his grandfather and fished for salmon there, but he used to always say to the local fishermen in that area, do you ever see any really big fish here, you know, jumping out of the water? And some of the old men said they had a fish that they called the Ronach Moor, which is big mackerel. And there were some of those men that said that they had seen these big mackerel. But at any rate, Dan had always, this question was in the back of his head, were there bluefin tuna in, in Ireland? He thought there was because he thought there was food here and the water temperature was correct and everything else was right, so they should be here. So Clive Gammon had put this ad in the magazine. Dan picked it up and answered it and got in touch with Clive Gammon and Clive put him in touch with me and it was arranged that Dan Shannon was going to come over when I got my boat and show me how to fish for bluefin tuna. And he was going to bring over a couple of his rods and the equipment. He just wanted a couple of things done in my boat to make it ready so that his equipment could be used in my boat. I fitted a couple of American rod holders I also fitted an outrigger system for trolling lures. So the stage was set, effectively, for me. What, of course, happened was the boat, if you ever get a house built or a boat built, it drags on it. It always works out later than planned. So at any rate, I didn't actually take delivery of my boat until the 22nd of September 2000. I think it was, yeah, 22nd, 23rd of September 2000. And of course, as soon as I got the boat, I emailed Dan and said, you know, the boat's going to be here in a few days and uh, we're ready to go. So Dan booked the flights and arrived with me 
I think on the 11th of October 2000 with his kit. We spent the day then, we got the equipment ready down on the boat and that was us, we were ready then to start fishing for uh, bluefin tuna. I think we'd planned to take maybe three or four days of fishing for bluefin tuna. Now, while this was going on, Adrian Malloy in, in South Donegal, he had a small boat and he was out fishing, he'd already been out. In fact, I think Adrian had been out the previous year fishing for bluefin tuna and he actually had a hookup. That would have been 1999. But he was working away himself trying to catch a, a bluefin tuna unsuccessfully and he'd been at it the year previously. At the same time, this other man, Alan Glanville, who was 75 years of age, an old commercial fisherman who, from England who was living in the southeast corner of Ireland in Dunmore East, he was working away. He had planned to catch a bluefin tuna as well. And what actually happened then was Alan Glanville had booked an angling boat out of Kelly Beggs, a guy called Brian McGilloway, and a boat called the Suzanne, and it was a wooden boat, probably about 40 foot long, something like that. So Alan Glanville came up, and about two weeks before Dan Shannon arrived with me, Alan Glanville went to Kelly Beggs, and again, he adopted the Suzanne to take the angling rods for bluefin tuna. He fitted two plywood plates on both stern quarters of the Suzanne, and he had rod holders fitted into the plywood plates. And, of course, he, he brought the, the rods and all the equipment with him. And he went out trolling for bluefin tuna. So there was at least three of us, Adrian Malloy, Alan Glanville and myself, that were all trying at the same time, without really knowledge of each other, trying to catch one of these bluefin tuna. Alan Glanville was the man. He did it first. And he went out and landed 10 days before Dan arrived. Or actually, I think it was 10 days before me before I caught my tuna, he landed one out of Kelly Beggs. So he landed the first one. And he landed two. He landed one, and then the next day he went out and landed another. And I can't remember. I think the first one was 529 pounds, and the second one was smaller. I can't remember the weight of it. It was probably 350 pounds or 300 pounds. So finally, you have the proof that it can be done. Yes, well, Adrian actually had been at it the previous year, I believe he had a hookup and lost a fish. But at any rate, Dan Shannon arrived. And, I mean, I can relate then what happened when Dan arrived and how we got on and what we did. First day, we got the boat kitted up. We talked about tactics, and there are a number of different ways to fish for bluefin tuna. The two main ways. One is using a real fish as bait, and the other way is to use plastic so we decided at any rate that we were going to go the first day and we are going to go out to troll for bluefin tuna with plastic lures. The first day then was set up two rods on the outriggers that I had made up and Dan got his lures out, which are squid spreader bars. There's a steel bar about a metre long and it's connected in the middle to the main line coming from the, the rod and there are 16 plastic squid attached to this steel rod, this one metre long steel rod. So there are five strings of squid. On the outside of the steel rod, there are two squid attached. And these plastic squid are about, you can get them all sizes, but they're normally around 30 centimetres to 45 centimetres long. The ones Dan used were about 40 centimetres long. So if you imagine this steel bar, there are two plastic squid on the outside lines and on the middle line 
there is five plastic squid and then between the middle and the outside there's another line with three plastic squid so if you can imagine then on the outside lines there's two the next lines in there's three that's a total of, of ten and then in the centre line running down the centre there are five plastic squid now the outside lines would probably have 100 pound monofilament nylon the centre line would have 300 maybe even 400 pounds nylon because the way it works is although you've got five plastic squid in the centre line on this heavy nylon you put on another squid which will make the 16th squid you put on the other squid about three foot back from the pack and you normally make it a different colour so what happens is when this thing is trolled along on the surface these plastic squid they look like a shoal skipping along the surface and then the one at the very back which is like three foot behind the rest different colour that one is called the stinger and that is the only squid that actually has a hook in it and basically that's the way it works it's called a squid spreader bar normally 16 you can have them with, with less than that And the way the tuna feed is that they go into a shoal of bait fish. They eat the stragglers. You can imagine if there's a shoal of bait fish and tuna goes charging into the middle of them to eat what's in the middle. The bait fish scatter to the four winds and they manage to eat one fish or two fish. So the way they actually work is they go round the shoal of fish and they pick the stragglers up and they eat the whole lot. They attempt to eat every single one of them. And indeed, that's what they need to do because they need to eat so much food. We had two of these squid bars and we went out and started trolling them. I think one was like a green colour with a fleck through it and the other one was more of an orangey colour with stripes or something on it. And like most fishing lures, they come in all shapes and sizes and colours. The first day we went out, and that would have been the 13th of October in the year 2000, and we went out trolling and we spent the whole day just trolling at around about five knots, say, something like that. And we trolled out of Sheephaven Bay, out to the northwest, across then to the east. We went out, probably ended up about eight, ten miles off, and we swung over to the east, and then we, we headed back in towards Sheephaven Bay. We ended up back in the harbour at six o'clock, and uh, nothing. However, one thing that we did notice was that most of the bait fish that we saw in the sounder. And Dan was looking away at the sounder. I mean, he was actually looking for bluefin tuna to show up on the sounder because that would have been his modus operandi when he's working for bluefin tuna off Boston. But at any rate, we saw reasonable numbers of bait fish on the sounder, but no sign of bluefin tuna. So quite disappointing. What we did notice, though, that most of the bait fish that we saw on the sounder seemed to be more to the east rather than to the west. So we decided that the next day that we were going to go out fishing and we were going to use live baits rather than trolling. And we decided that since we saw most of the bait fish more to the east, then we would try over that way. Fish really with the boat just drifting, with the engine switched off and the boat drifting, we were going to put some live baits out. So the next morning we headed out. I had arranged, as per Dan's instructions, to get a live bait tank fitted on the boat, which was really a 40-gallon drum, large barrel of seawater. And we caught some mackerel, and we actually caught a couple of coals fish as well. And 
we decided to use a mackerel and we, we actually put, I think we put one mackerel and one cold fish down. We steamed out to, there's a rock here which is about three miles north of Melmore Head called the Limeburner Rock and there's a cardinal boy half a mile to the north of it. So we decided that we were going to fish out in the area of that Limeburner boy for no other reason other than that there's a boy there so there's a marker out at sea. So we headed out the next morning and caught our mackerel, took the boat over there and stopped about a few hundred metres north of the Limeburner boy and Dan showed me how to rig a live mackerel so that you hide the hook. The hooks were Gamagatsu 110 HD, which I think stands for heavy duty, live bait Gamagatsu hooks. At any rate, they're quite small but very, very, very strong. So Dan showed me how to rig a mackerel up so that this hook was hidden by its dorsal fin. Or the hook end went up in its dorsal fin. And the, the line came down past its nose and then we stitched the uh, line in tight to its nose, at the point of its nose, so that the line would be hidden to a, a good extent. So we stopped the boat. We put one live mackerel on a trace, maybe 20 foot long, 130 pound fluorocarbon, and sambo snap swivel onto the main line, 130 pound main line. We had two of these rods, one with a live mackerel, and I think we fished one about 30 metres deep, and I think we fished the other one about 20 metres deep. But I think it was a cold fish we fished at 20 metres deep. And Dan had brought the rods, and they were standard American tuna rods, very, very thick, seven foot long, say, very heavy, and Penn International 130-pound class reels. Anyway, with the two live baits, one at about 30 metres, one about 20 metres, and Dan also then put another rod out on a kite lure, a fishing kite and use the wind to suspend a live bait just really on the surface right on the surface so that the line goes from its back up in the air and there's no line in the water at all you use one rod to, to keep the, the kite up in the air and then use the other a knockout clip on the bottom of the kite on another rod effectively then we had one live bait right on the surface on the kite one live bait at 20 metres and one live bait at 30 metres and we just really effectively got all the rods set up and everything sitting looking hunky-dory. It took us a good while, I'm sure, an hour to get all that stuff set up because I didn't know what it was doing. And at any rate, we got the two rods down in the water and the, the, the kite lure up. Everything was sitting great. And I'll go in and make a cup of tea. And as I said that, I stepped over the coming into the wheelhouse. I got one foot in the wheelhouse and one of the rods let off an almighty scream couldn't believe it an almighty scream like wow <laughs> I mean I've fished my whole lifetime I never heard such a noise before I have since obviously with Bluefin Tuna I went out and Dan was starting to wind in I said what'll I do Dan what'll I do and Dan was winding one rod and he said get the kite line in get the kite line in so I started winding in the other rod and then he was going far up the engines <laughs> because there were only two of us on board and we had to get all the other lines and get the kite in and this reel was still screaming away and we had to start turning the boat then in order to fight the fish we managed anyway, we got the other two rods in and we got the engines fired up the rod of course, it's a bent butt rod the rod was in the, the rod holder, and if the tuner ran to the right, the rod would twist to the right, and if the tuner ran to the left, the rod 
because of this bent butt system, which more or less follow it. And that was it. The tuna was on. I got the engines fired up and the tuna stopped and then took another run in another direction. And actually, a couple of minutes after we got the engines fired up, the tuna came across in a run across the broadside of the boat, probably about 30, 40, 50 metres out from the boat, crossing the starboard side. And it came up on the surface and it looked at the boat. I saw it looking skated across the surface I don't know, I think it wondered what this line was or what had happened the thing about a tuna when you get in a line is, the danger part is the boat if the line catches anywhere in the boat the line will break instantly because tuna are so strong, the line is so taunt that if it touches the boat really it's probably going to break so what ends up happening is that you have to turn the boat so that the, try to keep the fish off the stern of the boat, so if the stern of the boat's pointing to the north and the fish runs west, then you would turn the bow of the boat to the east. And if it's taken off a lot of line, you'd put the boat astern and you would go astern after the fish. And then sometimes the fish would run, if it runs along the starboard side heading towards the bow of the boat, you would steam with the fish but keep the boat off it. I mean, it's fairly logical. The best thing is to keep the line off the transom, out off the stern and keep the fish out off the stern. But constantly, you're using the engines to, to chase the fish down. That's the way the fight goes. Whenever they take a bit, normally what they do is they'll take one searing run, unbelievable searing run, uh, in one direction, and then stop, and they'll run in another direction, and quite often back towards the boat. And you know, and they could run out 200, 300 metres a line stop and then take another run in another direction but as a very general rule they do that and they'll stay up quite near the surface while they run around when they start to tire after whatever 20 minutes or 15 20 minutes 30 minutes they tend to go down deep and they circle down below the boat and that tuna was fairly standard in that respect it kept quite close to the surface it was zipping here there and everywhere Dan was turning the boat round and round. I was out on the rod, and the fish was skating across, back and forwards. Dan was moving the boat, you know, using his expertise to keep the, the line clear of the boat. So that, that went on for quite some time. I think it took us from the fish hooked up until the fish was landed. It was an hour and a half. So extremely strong fish extremely hard to tire out and really the fish is fighting the boat and I have 620 horsepower and I know that when they, they used to fish for tuna in the North Sea they used small boats and of course they had to use small boats because they couldn't have chased them down the same way as a modern boat could and by using a small boat the tuna towed the small boat around and that's what tired it out at any rate with that particular fish, after about, I suppose, 20, 30 minutes, something like that, it got tired and it went down deep and started circling round and round and round. And of course, when it's circling round, when the line is going down close to the boat, you have to kick the boat forward to keep the line out from the boat. And that's it. And just keep pressure on the rod and eventually the tuna comes up to the surface. So eventually the fish tired to the point where we were ready to land the fish. And Dan had brought a harpoon tip with him six inches long 
and that was part of the kit in the boat up as well. I got a steel pole, about 10 foot long, and uh, we got a, a rod welded in the end of it, and the harpoon tip fitted in the rod at the end of it. And we had that harpoon sitting ready. That was how we were going to land the fish. We are going, going to hit it with the harpoon, kill it, and bring it in for the photographs. So that's what we did. When the fish got up near the surface, Don came out of the wheelhouse, but he had previously explained to me, he'd said, we're going to have to harpoon the fish. He said, there's only two of us here, so we need two people, one person to hold the line and the other person to harpoon it. And I said to him, what's the most dangerous part? And he says, holding the line, that's the most dangerous part. I said, well, I'll harpoon it and you, you wear it. So when the fish got up to the surface, close to the surface, Dan came out of the wheelhouse and he, he took the line, he had a pair of gloves with him to hold the line. And, he, and this is very, very dangerous because... Lots of people have been pulled into the water and killed by bluefin tuna. People have lost their fingers, their hands with bluefin tuna. At any rate, Dan came out of the wheelhouse and he took the line and he started pulling the fish up through the water. I had the harpoon ready. If you can imagine a black man in Africa with a spear ready to, to spear something. So I was standing with the harpoon and he was pulling the fish to get it up to the surface. And in my head, I said, I was saying to myself... This may never happen for the rest of my life again. I might never see another fish like this for the rest of my life. I could miss this fish with a harpoon. The line could break. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to hit it hard. So that thought was in my head. It doesn't matter if I miss it, so what? But I'm going to really throw this harpoon really strongly. At any rate, Dan brought the, the fish up. He wired the fish up. The fish came up to the surface about a couple of metres out from the boat. And I was standing waiting to get a clear shot at it with the harpoon. And as the fish came up on the surface, it turned on its side. And I saw the flank of the fish, the side of the fish. And I launched the harpoon as hard as I could. The harpoon hit it right in the centre of the lateral line, halfway up the, the fish. Absolutely, perfectly, pure luck. But at any rate, I hit it as hard as I could. And of course, the fish went whizzing away again. And what happens is the harpoon dart, the, the head of the harpoon, the six inch brass head, it comes off and it stays on the rope and the ten foot pole is tied up with one of the separate ropes. So I got the ten foot pole, uh, steel pole back into the boat. And now we had the fishing line in the fish's mouth and we also had the rope on the harpoon dart which was in the fish somewhere. So I think one of us took the rope and I think Don took the, the, the fishing line and I took the rope and we gently pulled it up because you're not sure if the dart's going to be in or what way the dart's going to be in. But at any rate, we pulled the fish up to the surface and when we got it up to the surface, Don said, he looked at the fish and he said, Jeez, mate, you buttonholed it. And this is the American turn of phrase, but... What actually happened, the harpoon had gone the whole way through the centre of the fish and out the other side. Unbelievable. And so the harpoon dart, the head of the harpoon is designed to go sideways when you pull in the rope. So the, the actual head of the harpoon, the six inch brass head for the harpoon, was sticking out the other side of the fish and then the rope coming through the middle of the fish. So it was well and truly caught. We held it on the surface and Dan got a boat hook and he raked the gills of the fish with a boat hook and that was really to bleed it so that it would die fairly quickly then. And that was it. Uh, a shame to kill it. We needed the photographs. 
we got a rope round its tail and tied the rope onto the uh, the stern cleat of the boat and we started towing it back into shore. And of course, I think within five minutes, I had somewhere between 10 and 12 ropes tied around, tied around its tail. <laughs> Kissable, we lost it. But at any rate, we towed it back in, the Downings. We had to get a, a forklift truck down to the pier to lift it up. We couldn't weigh it. We didn't have scales big enough to weigh it. So I got, we actually had two sets of scales. I had a set of 200 pound scales and someone else had another set of 200 pound scales. We hung the tail up on one set of scales and the mouth up on the other set of scales. And the two of them added together came to 344 pounds. Lovely fish. We measured it actually and the formula they used for measuring the weight of a fish was was the same. So um, yeah, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful fish. Real shame to kill it. It wasn't the first of many, it was the first of a number, but in all of the years I've had to think about 16 or 18 hookups, but I've actually only landed four fish. Obviously, as your knowledge grows, so too should your experience in terms of approach. So what eventually turned out to be the most productive tactic? One of the big problems I had was that I caught that fish on a live bait. And what happened for the next three years or something like that? I was using live baits to try to catch bluefin tuna. And actually, the most efficient method, as it turned out, was the plastic squid. And it was only when I eventually got talking to Adrian Malloy, three years later, and I got a talk with him, they realised that the squids were the best way to catch the fish, but I had been sort of, if you like, hooked on using live baits. So, Understandably so. Could you now talk us through the progressive history since that first fish in terms of collective numbers of fish spotted, hookups, and finally total fish caught? I mean, you have to remember there were a number of things going on at the same time. Adrian Malloy then started catching them off West Donegal, and Adrian became the person that was catching the most. And I was sticking away at the live baits, and I hooked up two or three fish. But really, I wasn't getting numbers for the the effort I was putting in. I was getting very few fish. And the other thing, of course, is that I was going out blind. I mean, really, over the next two years, from 2000 to 2003, when I first met Adrian, we had sightings of bluefin tuna. They were fairly sporadic, the sightings. I would say, actually, Adrian had gone much further than I had gone. He understood them far better. And because he was trolling for them, with these plastic squid he was covering a lot of ground and because he was covering a lot of ground he was actually seeing more fish a lot more fish than I was seeing whereas with live baits you're sort of static you pick a spot to go and you go out to a spot and you stop there and you put your live baits out and you wait and you hope whereas Adrian's method or the squid using plastic squid we are trolling is much more proactive method Adrian was catching good numbers of bluefin tuna down off the west coast of Donegal I mean I was seeing them I would say fairly sporadically. And then, of course, you're never really sure because at that time of the year, in the season out there, September, October, the weather can be very bad here. And there's times you, for two weeks you wouldn't even be able to go to sea. At any rate, the numbers of bluefin tuna then, when, whenever I started, I really only started using squid in 2003 after I spoke to Adrian. And then I started seeing lots of tuna then um, because it's a much more proactive and you're searching out the fish. Um, and we were seeing loads and loads and loads of bluefin tuna at times. The nature of the beast is you go one day and you see nothing, and you go the next day and you see nothing, and then you go the next day and you see lots and lots and millions of the, well, 
thousands of bluefin tuna and you'll maybe see them for three or four hours and then the next day you go back and it's the same then you go back the next day and there's none yeah. I mean that's the way it is with bluefin tuna they're huge big fish and I mean I know there, there's times that I mean I, they've been on the surface feeding away and I've been trolling these squid lures travelling at say around five knots and I'm trying to get close to the bluefin tuna and they're maybe half a mile from me or a mile from me and I don't want to rev the engines up so I'm going at them at five knots and it can take me an hour, an hour and a half before you catch up on them and the thing is these things can feed at five knots so they can travel the oceans and they do travel the oceans I mean there's some bluefin tuna that have been tagged off America and they've, they've ended up in Sweden there's bluefin tuna that have been tagged off Donegal, off here and they've ended up in the Bahamas four months later these things can cover a lot of ground and uh, you don't know where they're going to be you really don't know where they're going to be so it's just a question of going out looking in the, in the sort of hot spots the favourite spots but as I say, you know, we're in fairly small boats. My boat's 43 foot. So there's times here, maybe don't have any bookings for a week. And then the next week you've got a booking for five days for bluefin tuna fishing. Maybe three of those days the weather doesn't let you out. So you get out two days. So in a two-week period, you fish two days for bluefin tuna. And you could go out those two days and there could be bluefin tuna there those two days or there could be none. You're never really sure. You don't know. And when they're not there, if you don't see them on the surface, I mean, could they be down under the surface where you wouldn't see them? You just don't know. You really, really, really don't know. But, I mean, obviously, keep your eyes open, and if there are tuna there, you should see them. I'll give you an example. There was one day we were out fishing off Hornhead, off Sheephaven Bay. Beautiful sunny day. Absolutely gorgeous sunny day. Not a nerve of wind, and the sea was completely flat. It was like a mirror. The boat was just drifting for, say, three or four hours. And every 15 or 20 minutes or so, I heard a splash. I looked round and I could see the, the white water. And it obviously was a bluefin tuna. But if there was any ruffle in the sea at all, you wouldn't have seen that. But every 15 or 20 minutes, you could see this disturbance in the surface. At that time, I mean, from 2000 onwards up to 2005... There were lots and lots and lots of bluefin tuna here. Lots and lots and lots. I think they were sort of everywhere. Just because they're not on the surface, you know. But at any rate, when they get into that feeding frenzy, when they're feeding on bait fish, there can be thousands and thousands of fish. I mean, they can be absolutely everywhere. It's unbelievable. You look north, south, east or west and you can see bluefin tuna bust on the surface. It's incredible. Would it be fair to say then that as time marched on and both techniques and the fish locating skills improved, catch rates should have shown a similar improvement? But they didn't. In fact, looking at the sighting strikes and hookup statistics, 2001 up to and including 2004 were collectively the best years, after which it almost dies very quickly into where we are today in 2013, with no rod and line successes across the whole fleet for several years. Any thoughts then on the reason behind that? Has it been progressive or did it collapse all of a sudden? From about 2005 or thereabouts, the numbers just started collapsing. Every year there was less. And because it's very difficult to know, because as I say, there's times that you're stuck in harbour for a week or a couple of weeks because of weather, and then you get out for two days, and, and then you don't maybe don't get out to the following week. 
So you're never quite sure, but absolutely, as the years ticked on after around 2005, the numbers just started to collapse. We just weren't, we were spending the days out there and we weren't seeing them in the same numbers. Yeah, there were, there were days you were seeing good numbers, but as each year went past, it became less and less and less and less to the point, actually, where the anglers had no interest. We stopped getting bookings because the thing about bluefin tuna and people who have fish for them. I mean, I remember talking to one guy, an English angler. He summed it up in this sentence, or these few words, they do get to you. And they do get to you. When you are out there and there's bluefin tuna and they're all around the boat, it's such an experience that you cannot but want to do it again. And even as a skipper, I make my living from the sea and from taking anglers out. They get to me as well. You know, in that period of drought, I mean, I went there for a couple, two years or three years without seeing any bluefin tuna. It does get to you that you don't see them. It's They're absolutely fantastic. Just being out there whenever they're feeding is absolutely incredible. Back in the 1940s and 50s, when the North Sea was the place to be for big bluefins, it was thought that the fish migrated up the west coast of Ireland and around the top of Scotland to the Yorkshire coast. Then later, presumably, as water temperatures dropped, they'd take the same route back. Is that still the understanding? And if it is, do you see them travelling in both directions, depending on which end of the season you're fishing at? No, no. The migration pattern, basically, is they breed in the Mediterranean, I think around April time, and they come out of the Mediterranean and they head north to eat like every other fish in the sea, they're really only interested in two things. Well, apart from not being eaten, they're interested in two things. The first one is sex, and the other one is food. And they breed in the Mediterranean, and then they come out of there, and they head north to eat. And they need lots and lots and lots of food. So their migration pattern is coming out of there and heading up. And I think they used to catch them off Sweden and Norway and up, up that direction. The ones in, in America... They breed in the spring in, in the Gulf of Mexico and they head up to Canada in the autumn and then go back down again. And the scientists used to believe that it was two separate bodies of fish, the ones in the east coast of America and the ones in the west coast of Europe. But actually, when they started tagging fish, they found out that the fish were crossing the Atlantic Ocean. But they're still unsure if it's only the males that are crossing, how many are crossing, they just don't know, but they, they certainly they have tagged fish off America and they've ended up off Sweden. I mean, one of the fish that tagged off here, off Donegal, with a satellite pop-up tag, ended up off the Bahamas four months later. So they cover the oceans. But scientists are still, they're still unsure about the complete picture. They're still looking for information there. But at any rate, in terms of numbers, they have, they have been declining badly. Actually, I read the other day that Atlantic bluefins have had their ICAT quota cut, ICAT being the intergovernmental group responsible for tuna species. That's right. They cut the quotas back a couple of years ago, and I don't know exactly how much they've cut the quotas by, but certainly I have been hearing tales this past couple of years about good numbers of bluefin tuna off Spain and off Croatia in the Mediterranean, and actually... Last year, 2012, the autumn of 2012, there were reasonable numbers at times off the coast here as well, off, off, the coast, off the coast of Ireland. So maybe the quotas are working. Maybe they'll come back. 
I live in hope. And has this decline made you think that run line catches, as small in number as these were, could also have made a difference? You said yourself earlier that it was a shame to kill that first big bluefin you caught. So what then are your thoughts on tag and release? I actually only ever killed two fish. The first one, which I needed for the photographs and marketing. The second one, I, when I caught in 2003, was a Dutch-European record. So it, it needs to be weighed ashore to be validated. And it was 507 pounds. And when I killed this, I hit it with a gaff. And to be honest, that was the last one I killed. And I thought to myself, when I put the gaff into it, this isn't right. I won't be doing this again. And I made my mind up there and then, unless I caught an absolute monster of a fish, maybe way over a thousand pounds, I'm not going to kill anymore. The next two I caught after that, I tagged and released them. And no doubt you regularly saw some very big fish. Adrian Malloy ended up taking the record at £968 back in 2001. But from what you saw, realistically speaking, how high might that record ultimately have gone? The size of bluefin tuna, I mean, certainly... I have never seen any here smaller than... The smallest one I ever saw was landed in the trawler. I think it was about 200 pounds. The most of the ones that we see, the small ones would be 300 pounds upwards. I would say the average size is sort of five, 600 pounds, something like that. But we've certainly seen fish. Huge monsters, monsters of bloody fish. Way over a thousand pounds. The world record bluefin tuna is, I think it's about 1,400 pounds, something like 1,375 pounds. And I'm, we've definitely seen fish much, much bigger, much bigger than that, you know. But, um, yeah, huge. Catching tuna is most definitely one of those stories with two sides. On the one hand, envy of the person on the rod, but from my own experience, and that unfortunately being mainly with smaller fish, a certain amount of pity too, knowing the physical mauling they're about to receive. An hour and a half is a standard fight time for me. And my arms are aching. The next morning, when I waken up, I can hardly move my arms because I'm swinging the steering wheel back and forwards and the throttles on the boat for an hour and a half. And that's me just moving the boat around. The fish is feeding the boat. So it's tremendously difficult for the fish. And it's tough on the angler as well, but I have a fighting chair in the boat. And the anglers really, they're using their leg muscles actually to catch the, to beat the fish, you know. But it's actually the boat. If you didn't have the boat, you wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't be able to catch them. I mean, these fish are like a stallion. Could you imagine catching a wild stallion on a piece of line, 130 pounds, breaking strain, you know? It wouldn't happen. There's obviously the clutch and the reel and whatever. I'll give you an example of the strength and the speed of these things. I'll give you a couple of examples. Whenever you hang a live mackerel out over the side of the boat... All sorts of things will eat it. Sharks will eat it, tope will eat it, spur dogs will eat it, seals will eat it, squid will eat it. But I caught a 70 pound blue shark on one of my tuna rods one day on a live bait. And the only reason I knew that the 70 pound blue shark was on the line, I could see the balloon moving. In other words, I had the drag set about 37, 38 pounds. The blue shark couldn't pull one inch of line off the reel, not an inch, 70 pound blue shark. And when a bluefin tuna hits it, it takes line off so fast, you can see the spool getting smaller. You can look at the spool, you can visually, it's just colour. The line's ripping off at such speed, you'd think you were hooked on the back of a car. It's absolutely phenomenal speed. And do you still have the outriggers and chair fitted to the board? 
or have they now been removed just to see how the future pans out? The fighting shower takes up a lot of room in the boat, but I mean, I, I can fit the fighting shower in 10 minutes, and the outriggers, half an hour fits the outriggers, so I mean, uh, they're sitting ready to go. The rod holders, I mean, they're, they're there all the time. So no, to get the boat up for tuna fishing would take me an hour, an hour and a half, and I would be ready to go. So at the moment, then, it's not operating as a tuna boat? No, I mean, the tuna season is relatively short. It's at the end of the season when the weather's bad, so it's always like a sort of a an additional bit extra. So, And what do you see as being the future for bluefin tuna? The biggest problem with bluefin tuna, it's very, very simple. They are too damned expensive. An average bluefin tuna in Tokyo market will reach 20,000 US dollars. That's the problem. And it's the same as rhino horns and elephant tusks. When you have big, big money on anything, there's a lot of people trying to get it. It's, it's absolutely bluefin tuna like that. And I know that ICAT have cut the quotas down, but there's also what's known as black fish, in other words, illegal fish, or fish that are landed illegally. And we, we don't know, I mean, <laughs> by its very nature, you don't know how many black fish are being landed. So, But the problem is that they are a very expensive fish. So what's it going to take then to restore the tuna fishing along the Irish coast? Well, I think if they continue with the quotas, and what they're starting to do now is where fish are being sourced is being handed over so that the retailers know where the fish is sourced. And I mean, with a bit of luck, because the, the problem, the, the big money, it's Japan. There's really nobody else is back paying that huge money for bluefin tuna other than the Japanese. And if I can't introduce the proper quotas and the fish are properly looked after by the retailers in Japan their source to come from a legal source I have every hope that they will come back I mean the huge fecundity I think female tuna is 40,000 eggs or 400,000 eggs or whatever it is anyway it's an awful lot anyway so um, they will come back I really really hope they do because I, I miss them actually Illegal tuna catches suggest more people fishing for them then than the three you've mentioned including yourself so did the publicity those early catches drew also entice others to give it a go well, what actually happened with me, Clive Gammon wrote the story of that bluefin tuna in the English magazine called The Field, and there were several boats that came. I mean, there was a guy that brought a boat from La Gomera in Spain to fish for bluefin tuna, a fella called John Gill. There was another guy who worked in Sellafield in Cumbria. He brought a private boat over, and he used to take his holidays you know, four weeks or five weeks, he took all his holidays in September and came over here and fished for bluefin tuna. There was a, a purse singer from Spain which came here looking to catch. Ireland, ironically, I think it's the only country in Europe or Africa that does not have a quota for bluefin tuna. The quota for bluefin tuna is a bycatch of those super trawlers. They're allowed a half a percent of their weight as a bycatch of bluefin tuna. But Ireland itself doesn't have a quota for bluefin tuna. So no one can target bluefin tuna in Irish waters, which is within 12 miles of, of land. No one can actually commercially target bluefin tuna. And that's where most of the tuna are. They're within 12 miles of, of land. So uh, luckily we didn't have Spanish porcinos here fishing for them. Yet still, the numbers are down. Yeah, the reason they're down is simple. I mean, it's overfishing in the Mediterranean. Everyone in the Mediterranean catches them. 
all of those countries, <laughs> Algeria, Libya, Cyprus, Malta, Turkey, Egypt, Croatia, Italy, France, Spain, every one of them. One fish is $20,000. Guys can go out and spend a lot of effort fishing for them. And co- when they come through the Straits of Gibraltar, which is, I can't remember what that is, it's about 30 or 40 miles wide, they're particularly susceptible there. They used to send the spotter planes up to look for them, and the spotter plane would call through to the commercial guy, oh, there's tuna at such and such a place, and then he would just go there. And the spotter planes can see them, even under the surface, because if they're swimming you know, five metres down, the spotter plane can see them under the surface. The problem's the money, $20,000 per fish. You mentioned earlier that you only fished the tuna towards the end of the summer, and now, by all accounts, even that has gone. So what do you fish for when tuna aren't your target species? My normal fishing is from April, May time through to October. And, uh, you know, with lots of good mixed fishing here. Most years I catch about 37, 38, 39 different species of fish in the boat. That speaks volumes. And what are those species? Yeah, we'll have poor beagle sharks and blue sharks here. We'll have good numbers of taupe. We'll have lots of wrecks here. Um, so with a pollock, cold fish and ling on the wrecks. With turbot, with turbot fishery here, hard to get really big ones, but we get them, you know, three, four pounds, five pounds. There's one area we get them, it's a reasonable size, up to about that. All the other sand, you know, place and dabs, ras, gurnards, lots of gurnards. One guy once said this was the gurnard capital of the world. And general good mixed fishing just out in the sort of general grounds. We still have fairly good mixed fishing here, it has to be said, you know, because I know in other parts the fishing's not so good, but it's fairly good here. Just to have been a part of those tuna days would have justified the investment to me. Fishing for some of the biggest and certainly the hardest fighting fish on the planet in home waters has to be a real buzz. But for the moment at least, Irish bluefin tuna fishing is now on the back burner. Not entirely confined to the annals of angling history, yet but certainly a major contribution to it, whatever the ultimate outcome. My thanks then to Michael McVeigh for talking us through the part he played in making that history possible. <laughs>